I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news. How are you, Jonathan? I'm doing all right. Thank you, Yonid. And I know you must be with a spring in your step because you're about to unlock, aren't you, where you are? I'm Jewish and in the news business. I don't think we ever have a spring in our step. But um, we are, we are, uh, things are opening up fast. Uh, I would say maybe too fast. I mean, some fear that it's the same. We're making the same mistakes we made uh, the last time around. The airport is going to open up schools almost completely opening up. The restaurants, the cafes, um, and even events for uh, hundred, hundreds of people. Uh, and a lot of people feel like this is because the prime minister wants the country to open up, you know, two and a half weeks before the elections. He needs the, those visuals. Um, but again, uh, the sort of health experts in this country is, uh, are, are really worried that this might be uh, too too quick. And, and, you know, the infection rate is still not uh, is still pretty high. There are more than 4000 cases, new cases uh, every day. So uh, we're watching this, you know, let's say carefully optimistic. From here, it does look very, very fast. I mean, schools are going back here next week, but everything else is really, really slow. And people are very conscious that the Pesach holiday, the Passover holiday, is coming at the end of the month. And even there, the next stage, there's schools next week, and then the next ever so slight loosening of lockdown happens on March 29th, which is too late yep. for the Seder. So the idea of people sitting in the garden, families coming, gathering, gathering together, in the, that won't be allowed because because that new easing comes too late. So we're going to be watching you very enviously all over there um, as, 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 as you get there. But you mentioned election. I'm interested to know, Yoni, the kind of preparation that you are now <laughs> immersed in because, I mean, uh, you, well, by now you're used to it, right? You've done, this will be your sort of, what is it, fourth, fifth in 18 months or something crazy? It's my fourth election uh, night broadcast in two years. Fifth, if you count the uh, American elections. All in all, my ninth election night broadcast. And when I mean election night, it's a whole night election night. I mean, 11 hours of, of broadcast. If I had to sort of put this on a, on a in a normal country, like every four years, if we had elections, this would be a 36 year career. Um, but I don't have a 36 year career. It just feels like that sometimes. So really, it's a big deal. Um, you need to prepare for this uh, a few weeks uh, in advance. Um, and it's uh, and it's but quite, do you do like it's physical training and all that? Because I've been a guest <laughs> on these election shows and you come in at three in the morning and then you go, you know. But yep. the host is there for, for some marathon session all night. And I've seen these, t you know, news anchors with their sort of bananas and nuts for energy supply. And everyone always wants to know how do you go to the bathroom or how do you not go to the bathroom <laughs> during an 11-hour broadcast. So I want we, to know all of it. What, what is your we, kind of pre-marathon training we don't, we don't. We're very tough Israelis. We just don't go to the bathroom for 11 hours. No, there's a, there's a signal right? At some point in, during the night, because the first couple hours, you don't even have commercial breaks. So there has to be a signal where I'll look at our political analyst and I'll give him the sign and he'll know that he has to babble on for four minutes straight and I can run out and come back. Um, adrenaline is a, is a powerful force. But why are we interviewing me when we should be interviewing I'm in your, the author? In your, in, your, in your exercise and fitness regime before well, you go I'm on air. Tell all afterwards. the secrets in episode eight. What are you kidding me? No, nothing. I mean, you're not suggesting any bribe. And he said, I just give you all my secrets. It's not bananas. I'll tell you that. But anyway, um, I want to I want to interview the author of his 11th book, trying to make all of us look like procrastinators coming out today. 
your thriller, Jonathan. It is under the name, the pseudonym of your alter ego, Sam Bourne. Um, and the book is called, uh, is titled uh, To Kill a Man. Please tell us a little bit about it. Well, you're very kind to mention it. It is quite true that today is publication day. This is a sort of, I am a lockdown victim because this book was really meant to have had its big entry into the world in March 2020. And in fact, the date of publication was more or less the day lockdown (laughs) began. So we're doing it all over again. It was all planned on the assumption that surely by March 2021, lockdown (laughs) would be over. But guess what? The bookshops are still closed. But we are, the book is To Kill a Man, as you said, is by my thriller writing alias uh, and alter ego Sam Bourne. Uh, It's a thriller that imagines, asks the question really, of could a presidential candidate get away with murder? And that's because the opening action is a woman rising star lawyer, Natasha Winthrop, is attacked in her own home in Washington, D.C., but fights back and leaves her attacker dead. And some questions start emerging as various holes appear in her story. Is she telling the truth? Was she the victim of this crime? Or was she perhaps uh, something else? Um, It is, you know, once again, set in Washington, D.C. As you know, that's where I was, a correspondent all those years ago. And uh, it features my, kind of in a way, another alter ego, my, you know, regular uh, protagonist, Maggie uh, Costello, if you're Irish, Maggie Costello, everyone else would say. (laughs) And she is a, you know, a highly principled troubleshooter, in Washington, Irish-born, lives in America, and uh, she is there to see if she can somehow get to the bottom of this mystery and clear this woman's name so that the path is clear for her to challenge the incumbent and widely reviled president. Okay, since I am a big fan of yours, you know, that's not in a creepy Stephen King, Kathy Bates kind of way, but I'm a big fan. (laughs) And I always wondered about that pseudonym. Because, hmm. I mean, what? why would you need... This is fun, me interviewing you. We can do this the whole program. Why do you need the Sam Bourne to write the thriller? Well, the origin of it is that uh, I first came up with a thriller idea back in the early noughties. And my very oldest friend, who also is my literary agent, uh, said to me, yeah, he liked the idea. It was an idea that turns on a very Jewish idea, by the way, a Kabbalistic idea. It's that, the that Righteous Man? The Righteous that is the book? Man, yeah. Yeah, we, we can't say what the Kabbalistic idea is because that will be a spoiler. <laughs> but it, it turns on that idea. And he said, you, look, I really like the idea, uh, but the only problem is your name. And I said, well, what's, you know, what's wrong with my name? And he said, because it sounds like a pointy-headed columnist for a pointy-headed newspaper. And what he meant huh. was it's sort of too kind of political, cerebral, and not kind of mass market. And he thought the idea was a mass commercial idea. And so, you know, I said, fine, we'll think of something else. And we thought of this other name, Sam Bourne. There's a story behind that one day, I can tell you. And, you know, he was proven right because the book did become a bestseller. And so after that, I was then chained to it. I mean, you know, happily. But obviously, once we'd had a hit, we couldn't change. So Sam Bourne is the kind of thriller writing fictional side of my brain. And then, you know, JF is the is the rest of me. Okay, I'm just suggesting a character for your next book, like a, an exhausted anchor woman slash podcast host who is on her way to her ninth election. You podcast. know, don't joke. That's why in the middle of I'll, a pandemic. Why do you think I was asking you? Enough. 
about the the, the day-night regime. That's because I'm, I'm gathering string and detail <laughs> and bananas and nuts. I need to know all these things. You give me that great thing about the four-minute signal, running to the bathroom, running back. I think there could be a setting there. I'm, I think I'm we, glad we, to be we, of service to the Samborn Empire. Yeah, um, I'm on it. <laughs> now, people didn't come here for all of this, Yoni. We are meant to be two Jews on but the news. But now they have. Now they realize what, it's, what the... It, it's uh, become two Jews talking about <laughs> each other. We've got to talk about the news. And there has been some big news from at your end that affects everyone in the whole Jewish world. Exactly. So we have a lot of Jewish news to talk about uh, this, this episode. So on Tuesday, uh, Israel's High Court of Justice ruled that reform and conservative conversions to Judaism conducted in Israel would be recognized for citizenship uh, purposes. Um, it has already been recognized outside of Israel. So this actually, I mean, is relevant to a few hundred cases in Israel. But if you take a step back, you you kind of need to see that it's it's um, it sheds a light on, on the fact that there's a huge number of people in Israel, about 450,000, uh, who are considered Jewish under the uh, the law of return, meaning that they can enter, they receive a, a Israeli citizenship automatically. But according to the chief rabbinate, um, and according to real Jewish religious law, the halakha here, they are not Jewish. So that gap is, is creating a problem, and it's, and it's widening, right? Now, the rabbinical institution controls so many aspects of our lives in Israel, mainly, well, marriage and death. Uh, by the way, Al Bundy uh, and Married with Children said about four weddings and a funeral. Those are five things that are the same. Uh, but again, <laughs> this is this is the aspect of civil life in Israel, which is essentially controlled by the chief uh, uh, rabbinate. And and so here, this is what they feel. Again, the ultra orthodox that uh, 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 rule the rabbinate these days, they feel like this is a dent or diluting their their power. But we should talk about, of course, the political sort of frenzy that ensued, uh, because we are in a in, in the middle of, a, of an election. Everything that's happening here sort of has the amplified uh, effect of that. Uh, first and foremost, uh, the, the the people who added fuel to the fire were the ultra-Orthodox Yahaduta Torah party, or the United Torah Judaism party, uh, who put out an election ad with dogs saying essentially reformed Jews will convert Jews, would even convert dogs into Judaism. This is, of course, incredibly offensive. You have Yair Lapid, who for him, this is something in the form of a, of, of a political gift, uh, writing in his Twitter page, you know, there were uh, regimes in the world that were uh, that would use or compare Jews to dogs. Anti-Semites of all generations have done that. And now Yadut Torah have joined them and that is disgusting. These are Netanyahu's political partners. Yeah, I think the the it's really interesting that particularly the offense caused by that ad and mm-hmm. and Yaelapi reaching back into his own family history saying his father famously a holocaust survivor remembered the sign in the Hungarian mm-hmm. parliament saying no Jews and no dogs allowed, you know. And the reason why I say that is that that issue of reformed Jews there are obviously some in Israel, some non-Orthodox, religiously aligned Jews, Reform and Conservative, but they, where that point lands most is is outside Israel, because you know you look at American Jewry, for example, and a plurality of American Jews identify as non-Orthodox, either Reform or Conservative, or actually yeah. the biggest category, you know, just Jewish, um, mm-hmm. but. Orthodox are very much a minority in the United States and in the wider diaspora. And so, but particularly, you know, people who who have, uh, who are are members of or affiliated with reform or conservative, 
they exist in big numbers outside Israel. And so they will look, I mean, to the extent that they'll see this ad, but they will think, that's me you're talking about. You know, you're, that's my community, my rabbi. And it goes to why, in a way, this is such a, a resonant issue. Because, you know, you know, I know that technically, actually, this specific ruling doesn't have a massive impact on the diaspora, because as you said, they're already covered under the rules, conversions outside Israel. And this is really about the few dozen people who get reform or conservative conversions inside Israel. Nevertheless, this is a hugely symbolic issue uh, for the diaspora, because this question of who is a Jew is exactly the place where Israel and the Jewish diaspora collide. You know, this is an issue that impacts on our lives as Jews in the diaspora, and yet is often determined or debated and uh, discussed inside Israel. And almost, you know, you would often see that those moments where the American Jewish leadership, for example, really confronted the Israeli government wouldn't be about a new settlement here or a, you know, a, a military operation there. It would be on this issue. And it strikes me that, um, you know, if there's one issue that really needs to be resolved um, globally in the Jewish world, it is this question because it translates, it's not abstract, it translates into real world pain. You know, there are people, couples who've, one has, has met the other, they want to be together, one is orthodox and their rabbi will not marry them and that's, and therefore they can't be married or children who are not recognised to uh, uh, somehow in limbo, cast as illegitimate, etc. So it really, really matters. You know, it's bad enough that one denomination decides in Israel who can, as your four weddings and a funeral joke captures perfectly, who can marry and who can be buried where inside Israel. But actually the effect is, it can often be, that they are determining this for the whole Jewish world, this one strand inside Israel. So this is seen, I think, and it's been really interesting seeing the reaction um, in the from American Jewish groups really welcoming it, saying long overdue, celebrating it because this, they feel, is a step on the way right. towards legitimacy for them. And they are making those steps very slowly. This has to say, well, we, we maybe should note, out, right, note that right, it took 15 years for Israeli lawmakers to make any sort of decision. They didn't, so the court had to. The court re rather reluctantly sort of uh, held this uh, hot potato and made the decision. I mean, uh, as reluctant as a young you know, Jewish boy would be trying to sing Manishtana for the first time. I'm looking at you, Jonathan, when I say that. Um, <laughs> so they they really didn't want to make this decision, but they, but they finally did. And as you say, Israel is you know, for more than 70 years, not making a decision on who is a Jew, which means that the leading uh, denomination here is the, the religion of procrastination. And we, we, we do need to say that there has been a battle between the Orthodox and the Reformed Jews for more than 200 years. It's a rift that began even before the state of Israel. And what it says is, and what essentially, right, what are the Orthodox saying? They're saying they're blaming Reformed Jews uh, for assimilation, for turning a blind eye, for, they think, in, even in some cases, encouraging it, right? And the other part of it, the reformers are saying, wait a minute, I'm saving Judaism. Judaism is reforming, right? It's it's a verb. This is what we are doing. We are bringing more people or making Ju Judaism more acceptable. Now, I had a conversation with uh, with an, a very remarkable woman. She's Rabbi uh, Angela Buckdell. She's a star of the reform community in the United States. She's the head cantor and head rabbi of the Central Synagogue in New York. I, I met up with her uh, about a year ago, and she 
said these, when asked her, you know, what is, how did they relate to you in Israel? By the way, she's also half Korean. Uh, she has a Korean mother, a, a Jewish father. Of course, when she felt like Israelis look at her like as she's not Jewish enough, she had to go through the whole Orthodox conversion in Israel. But I want to hear a little bit of what she said uh, about the relationship between diaspora reform Jews and, and Israel. Let's listen in. Really that I feel like we've got in the Jewish state this monopoly on what religiousness looks like. And I actually think that a huge number of secular Israelis are just missing out. The idea is they're basically what I am, but they see it as they, but heaven forbid, they call themselves reform. Really interesting hearing Rabbi Angela there, because in a way that, that that's the heart of the question is, is this thing about saying, look, we are renewing Judaism because we are appealing to people who otherwise would just walk away. And in the American context, I've seen that brilliant report of yours from America. You know, she was playing to packed houses in yep. New York, right? The synagogue was just bursting. Free coronavirus, and, 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 yes. And, completely. you know, there will be orthodox synagogues around the world who will be looking at that with envy because they are mm -hmm. not getting those kind of numbers. And the people who are coming are old and dying out, whereas her congregation, I remember from the TV report, were young and, you know, from growing families. So, but she's asking there for orthodox Jews to sort of welcome them and and say, yeah, you're right, you're, you know, you're getting it right. That's never going to happen. Instead, yep. the bar I think needs to be low, which is just to say, look, I don't think you are the right kind of Jews, but you are Jewish. And for that, that basic recognition, I think that is essential. And your point about this has gone on for 200 years, absolutely right. It is a schism. And that Israel has, for the last 15, 16 years, very specifically not wanted to touch it, is such a huge, huge missed opportunity. Because what is a Jewish state there for? if not to resolve the huge questions of the Jewish people. In other words, here's a question which has gripped and divided Jews for two centuries. Surely the locus, the place for that to be resolved would be Israel. That's the whole point. If you go back to the sort of first Zionist thoughts, the whole point was create this state where these issues can be settled once and for all. And, you know, to, the Knesset to see itself potentially as the sovereign body of the Jewish people. You're making a, a, a you know, a, a very good and, and in a way tragic point. Something has changed in this country. And, and obviously at the beginning, the chief rabbinate was... Uh, made out of many religious nationalists. Over the years, it turned over to the ultra-Orthodox, who are not a majority in this country, right? But they do have a lot of political power. And the more that, and then it became more and more conservative, right? That is at least the sort of secular point of view looking at this. Now, the end of this story, what happened this week, and this has to, it ties into what we're talking about, is another a uh, 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 red line, I would say, crossed by Yadut Torah, the same party, a, a member of that party, the same name, Yitzhak Pindel, said about any woman that goes through conversion in the military, there is a trajectory for that, there's a, a special course, is a shiksa, which is a derogatory term for a woman who isn't uh, Jewish. Now, what is amazing about this is that the conversions during doing done in the military are orthodox conversions. They're not reformed. They're not conservative. These are orthodox conversions. And he basically was saying, basically putting out into the world the fact that the ultra-orthodox don't really want these, this process, even if they in some way, form or another control it. 
he's basically saying we, the, no no room for converts, which I think is, of course, when you look at the history of the Jewish uh, nation, Jewish people, that is a, a problematic thing to say. I think so. I think it's um, it does show you they have gone, you know, even further rightward. They're departed in some ways from their own history. You know, you go back many, many centuries and Judaism was much more comfortable uh, with conversion. There is some evidence that it was even a proselytizing religion, evangelizing, looking for converts until uh, our tormentors, our rulers, barred us from uh, doing that. I think it was in the Roman period where Jews were prevented from uh, proselytizing. And we have quite literally made a religion out of what was actually a prohibition and a limitation placed upon us. So this is something that really needs to be unwound. Yep. Um, So in this uh, conversation under the title Unorthodox, or it was... uh... Uh, an exhausting week to be Jewish in Israel. Let's talk about the exhausting week to be Jewish in the UK. Oh my, it is true. We are doing the sort of uh, uh, the Jewish stuff here uh, in quite a major way because it has been a bit exhausting. And, you know, in a way, not just a week um, because it's been ongoing. But no, it did sort of come to a, a head of sorts. It started in a very indirect way, actually, which is that the Scottish Labour Party, which has its own leader, elected a new leader in the form of uh, uh, Anas Sawa, and the deputy leader of the overall UK Labour Party welcomed his uh, success by saying he was the first ethnic minority leader of a British political party and because Anasawa is a Muslim. And immediately people popped up and said, but hold on a minute, there was a Jewish leader of the Labour Party just, you know, less than six years ago in the form of Ed Miliband. There was a Jewish leader of the Conservative Party before that, name of Michael Howard. Howard, And there was, of course, a Jewish (laughs) Prime Minister in the form of Benjamin Disraeli. Some argument about him because, talking of uh, proselytisation, his father had uh, Disraeli converted to uh, Protestantism. But, you know, by no stretch is Anasawa definitely the first Muslim leader, but definitely not the first ethnic minority leader. And it seemed to illustrate this point that when people on the left or progressives are talking about minorities, somehow, to coin a phrase, Jews don't count. And I say to coin a phrase because that is the title of a new best-selling book here uh, by the British Jewish comedian David Badil, which is it surprised people because it really is a genuine bestseller. Uh, it seems to have struck a chord. That sparked a whole row. There was a discussion on the BBC's daily politics TV show called Politics Live, where they literally had a sort of chyron in TV language, a caption along the bottom of the screen saying, are Jews an ethnic minority? And a panel... Are Jews an, an ethnic, ethnic minority? minority question Why is mark. the question, are we an ethnic majority? In, right, <laughs> in Israel, you're an ethnic majority. That's what we've been talking <laughs> well, about. That's it, but that's what we got. <laughs> but people thought it was weird to be saying this. And also the panel, apart from one person, was non-Jewish. And there they were sitting around debating. And people were saying, you know, can you imagine them having a discussion about black Britons or Muslim Britons? Oh, are you or aren't you? And having four white people discussing this, you know, and it was seen as really uh, offensive. The BBC executive in charge of the programme didn't really uh, sort of uh, back down, but if anything, slightly doubled down and said, you know, I was just government statistics don't, you know, don't, you're not on the government census. And therefore, it really got very kind of vexed. Uh, and um, it's it's just, you know, has it, it's been an uncomfortable experience. Yeah. But I'm trying to understand the question coming, like, does this, are Jews an ethnic minority? Is that a question that stems from the sort of left, the, the, 
feeling like Jews have become privileged, successful, let's say even white privilege, quote unquote, and thus cannot be, don't need to be related to as a, as a persecuted minority, as a downtrodden minority. Is that where this comes from? Is that, I mean, the, at the heart of that discussion? Yeah, I mean, th- this is, I think so. I think, um, so the phrase was, should, on the BBC, was should Jews count as an ethnic minority, question mark. And the word count there, wow. and Counts. again in the... And right. yeah, and in the title, Jews don't count means there's a lot. The, that word is doing a lot of work because it means should they get the perceived protections, and in a way, standing in progressive circles that being an often uh, being an ethnic minority confers. Um, mm. And this is what um, the argument is is about. In, in some ways, it's this idea that implied there is. Well, look, if, and in fact, the host of the show, and just to complicate things, she herself is Jewish, did ask the question, um, you know, is she said, I think, many Jews, here we are, many Jews have succeeded in reaching high political office, therefore don't need to be seen as a group needing recognition in the same way as others. And that implied there is this idea that, look, you guys, you've done well, you're affluent, you're successful, even perhaps powerful, and therefore, mm-hmm. you know, you don't count as a beleaguered ethnic minority, which is implied in that phrase. And and what, you know, David Bedeal in his book has been arguing very effectively is, well, look, you know, my grandparents were pretty affluent. They owned a factory and they were successful. Back in Germany, it didn't protect them from their fate under Nazism. And that's a real experience of his. Uh, mm-hmm. And 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 so the and similarly the fact that he himself not all Jews are white but he himself is white again he says doesn't give him security in the sense that whiteness is seem, is assumed to give you kind of security he still is on the receiving end of racial abuse and so on. This is I mean first of all we we're talking about how to decide who is a Jew I guess you just put that caption anyone who gets upset is Jewish right that just makes that that, uh, <laughs> that decision but no I mean it's it's an it's really an interesting. Um, story. I mean, first of all, I mean, you talk a lot about the fact that generally speaking, the Jewish community in the UK is is quieter, right? And kind of doesn't want to make a fuss. So I don't know how this feels for you or, or uh, you know, that, that this is becoming such an issue. Is it a good thing that, that it seems that like the Jewish community is fighting back on this? Or is it you're just like, we want to be left alone? Don't well, talk about the, it so much. I mean, this is what's so fascinating about the, the, the to be in this country right now uh, in the, with these arguments. And in some ways, people, you know, think it was all blown open by the Jeremy Corbyn episode. You remember the former leader of the Labour Party where who, you know, was at the centre of allegations and controversy about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party for the entire five years of his leadership. The, a lot of people said, ah, that has made Jews in Britain come out and be more defiant. Or was it the case that Jews just had become more defiant and therefore stood up to Jeremy Corbyn? Which came first? But the shift is real. And here is the shift in a nutshell. The Jewish community was seen for decades as being quietist, meaning almost as a philosophy, as a strategy, keep your head down, don't make a noise, don't make trouble. The famous example is in the when Oswald Mosley, the leader of the British Union of Fascists, really a would-be British Hitler, uh, chose to march through Cable Street in the East End, the Jewish East End then, of London. Uh, The official Jewish community position at the time was, let's not 
make a big protest let's not um uh, organize against this but rather hope that it just passes and it was let it was left to independent and other jewish organizations uh jewish socialists and communists working with their non-jewish allies to protest and it led to this seminal event in british jewish history the battle of cable street but the official community leadership stay down keep your head down wait for the moment to pass that in a way was how we saw ourselves for many decades to the point where when jews even talked about being jewish they would say oh that guy over there is he jewish and the (laughs) voice would drop you know and something changed and i think it was already changing but it absolutely came it erupted into public view when during the corbyn era and the uh, moment it, uh, of clarity was in the spring of 2018 uh, when jews demonstrated in parliament against the labor party under the slogan enough is enough and that phrase was so evocative because it captured this sense of exasperation and uh, uh, the sense that Jews had had it up to here with keeping their head down and being making nice. Mm -hmm. And now we were going to say enough is enough. We are going to defend ourselves. And that has been captured online by various Jewish celebrities, uh, the actress Tracy Ann Oberman, the TV host uh, Rachel Riley, and a whole lot of others tweeting and going head to head with anti-Semites uh, confronting them. Badil has now done this book, uh, you know, Jewish journalists and columnists like me writing about this, not just in the Jewish press, but in the Times or The Guardian or elsewhere, and sticking up for ourselves and becoming mm-hmm. a bit more like American Jews, actually, <laughs> a bit loud, a bit shouty, um, and and a bit more defiant. And this, I, and as I say, I think in a way, it may have been Jeremy's, Jeremy Corbyn's misfortune to <laughs> walk into a changed Jewish community. This was not your grandfather's or even father's Jewish community. This one was one that was ready to roll up its sleeves and fight back. And so that is why, you know, now the deputy leader of the Labour Party makes a little slip, really, about the Muslim leader of the Scottish Labour Party, and Jews make a noise and say, hold on, what about us? We count. And that is a big shift, I think. So we, um, I think we should move on to discussing Chutzpah Mensch, if we're being so loud about our Judaism. Let's, exactly. Uh, let's if, go you, about that. You see, that is to prove the point that we are <laughs> so out and loud and proud that we are happy to make a noise. I mean, I mentioned American Jews, and so they were very quick off the mark about the stage design. I like this story of the CPAC conference. You know about the um, mm-hmm. uh, the ultra right gathering, or ultra right? It's now pretty mainstream right. In uh, the United States, the group CPAC, they had their um, big gathering last weekend. And people noticed there was something odd about the pattern of the stage set. I mean, people are nothing if not sharp-eyed. And they noticed... And they're that stuck the, at home. They, had, they were looking that's for things right. to do. They, they noticed that the um, the set design, and you can look at it up online, it, it's, a, it's, you know, it's not a swastika, but it is rather a symbol uh, no, known as a Nazi rune um uh, a sort of odinist symbol let me find the uh the odal or othala rune the symbol that was actually on some nazi uniforms and if you look from above it does look like that uh, the designers uh, and so on have all said look we had no idea about that and you know what in a fair world i would say i was sh- i'm pretty sure the graphic designers who build stage designs for cpac and the same company did them also for msnbc I'm pretty sure they didn't know about this. But 
The reason why I give the chutzpah award is you absolutely know that if this was a group of the left, of some group among Democrats, Fox News and the rest would be immediately on their case saying this is outrageous and shows that the Democrats are all Nazis. So I think it is a chutzpah for CPAC to have had this as their stage design, set design, when we know they stick it to their opponents over the even unconscious and unintended lapses. So that's a chutzpah nominee for this week. Um, Chutzpah nominee accepted. Mine is less original, I must say. It's it's episode eight, and this is the first time we're giving out a chutzpah nominee to Benjamin Netanyahu, by the way, who hasn't been, uh, I think, named in this episode uh, thus far. Um, So during a... <laughs> obviously during an election campaign uh, and he has uh, began his interview blitz a little sooner than usual and what you've been hearing more and more from him is basically labeling sort of any doubts or questions about his uh, uh, policies as childish or idiotic so let's hear a little bit of that for a second I call it na 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 as na 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 so I'll just explain that. The na-na-na part <laughs> was um, targeting us, the media, uh, doubting his response to different variants and basically saying that we are, you know, uh, petty. And the Shasha part, I'm kind of embarrassed to even repeat it, was aimed at Dr. Ifat Shasha Biton, who's number two at Gidon Sal's party, used to be a Likud uh, minister and was very, very uh, uh, a staunch opponent of his coronavirus restrictions. Uh, it, you know, it kind of sounded not only derogatory, but a bit misogynistic. And she also said it was mocking her ethnic background. But the bigger chutzpah here, uh, I think, and this is why I think he is a nominee this week, is that he has been, uh, you know, in every interview and even taking it up a notch, saying he is the only one who brought Israel the vaccinations and the only one who will continue to bring Israel its uh, vaccinations. It's it's amazing. I was just looking, I just saw a tweet by Christiana Manpour from CNN who got vaccinated and she tweeted, proud, please protected. Thank you, NHS. Thank you, science. Right. But here, uh, the ex- what he accepts, uh, expects is to be thanked personally uh, for doing this. Right. And and since I don't or at least I didn't see this headline, in the New York Times that Pfizer has said that if Netanyahu isn't elected, it will discontinue uh, selling uh, vaccinations to Israel. Uh, I think that is um, I think this awards him with a chutzpah nominee. I think he could, he's a deserving and worthy winner. You could also, of course, in the same spirit, throw in Donald Trump, who admitted he got vaccinated uh, quietly, <laughs> having sponsored and encouraged all this vaccine scepticism earlier on about COVID. Um, but I, let's go to the happier task that falls to us, which is the Mensch Award. I'm going to um, nominate uh, the Iranian judo champion, Saeed Molai, or formerly Iranian, because he ended up fleeing the country, uh, who is now to be the subject of of a TV, uh, scripted TV series based on his um, decision to not bow to the pressure from his handlers who pressured him not to compete against fellow judoist, if that's the right word, judoka, Judo. uh, Sagi Muki from Israel. Uh, the, the Iranian authorities did not want him uh, competing against an Israeli, but Saeed Molai went ahead anyway, and now uh, MGM and United Artists have teamed up with Tadmor Entertainment in Israel to develop a series based on uh, this uh, the judoka duo and their stance, and I just think um, that's it's a nice story how the two of them uh, did you know decide to compete against each other and became uh, great friends? So I think he might get this week's Mensch Award. Um, 
good, good nominee if we're on the issue of entertainment, television, movies, etc. And in the spirit of having a manchette, uh, uh, this week, I think I give my nominee to the lovely Israeli actress Shira Haas, who is not only nominated for Golden Globe, uh, leading actress uh, for Unorthodox. I almost saw, said unholy, uh, but uh, she, wish. Uh, <laughs> um, she is now going to play Golda Meir in a new production by Barbara Streisand. I mean, I'm saying all these names together. I just, I'm verklempt. That is the only <laughs> word you can say, right? To, to have these names all combined together. Um, so I think that's a reason to be proud. And uh, and, and she's my Mensch nominee. Oh, it's a very good choice. And uh, verklempt is the word. Uh, and yet, for, you know, we, we, we like, she didn't spoil us enough with Yentl. She's now giving us... The Golda Meir story. I mean, two stories about Golda Meir. Who, um, the first is that she has a sort of hallowed place in our family history for two reasons. The first is, as I've mentioned, I think, before, my late father, Michael Friedman, presented a Jewish radio show uh, in this you country. You don't have right to be Jewish. The, you don't have to be Jewish. That was the title. On the BBC in the 70s and in the 80s and 90s. And an early guest was the then British Prime Minister, um, Harold Wilson, uh, who got into some trouble for being so warm in his relations with Israel, uh, some trouble with the British left, even back then. Uh, and he had once been seen uh, greeting his opposite number from Israel, Golda Meir, not just with a formal handshake, but with a kiss on the cheek. And uh, she said, isn't this going to give you some pr- some problems with your anti-Israel left? And he said, if they ask, I'll say the reason I did it, Golda, was just sex. <gasps> I can't believe it. And he said that this on the is, radio. This program. is a historic scoop. And this was on your father's program? He said, well, Wilson said it to my father. Whether <gasps> I could find the tape of it or not, but um, it was his quip to Golda Meir. That it's just this sheer sexual animal attraction between the two of us, Wilson and, and Golda. <laughs> and this was, rather this, than, isn't, this was a, an okay and acceptable joke in the 70s, right? Yes, it's a joke you probably wow. couldn't make now. It's quite true. <laughs> but but even before uh, the You Don't Have to Be Jewish program, uh, Golda Meir, or rather Golda Meyerson, as then was, uh, mm-hmm. had a hello place because if you dig out from the archives the uh, initial aliyah papers the migration papers the, that were stamped as golda myerson arrived in pre-state uh, uh, palestine as then was the name of the british official who stamped the piece of paper she came in at jaffa port is one nathan isador mindel who was my great great uncle and one of the characters in the book I wrote about my family, Jacob's Gift. So there is so, a fam- deep wow. family connection with Gordomir. <laughs> I hope Shira Haas brings all of this into episode one. Of course, I'm making of sure of it story. right now. First of all, any of us, and I'm one of those who read Jacob's Gift, know of this important part, right, that the Friedland family played in Jewish history, letting in the young Goldemarison. Um but this is this is remarkable, and it brings us to our theme of this episode, which was Jonathan Friedland's books from we, beginning to end. <laughs> why do we do this every single week? We can go. There's eleven we can, books. We can. We can go they, through God, them. God knows there are enough books to go around. We can. We'll this do, is me com- being very envious of you. I'll no, have you I know think, I'm, I'm the author of many unwritten novels, Jonathan. Don't, oh well, I want to read them. them. <laughs> but we, we'll, we'll, we'll alternate weeks. We'll do a book club of my things, and then we'll go back through your TV <laughs> reports from New York and all around the world. <laughs> sure. I mean, you and I will enjoy it. The audience maybe not so much, <laughs> nah, but you and I, I will enjoy it. Um, you, if you have enjoyed this one, I have to tell you, it is getting really almost embarrassing how 
you have not yet subscribed, <laughs> we need you to subscribe. We want you to follow us and do give us a, a gleaming review if you feel so moved. And of course, recommend us to your friends. Norton, and if you do subscribe, then Jonathan promises not to lay in the Jewish guilt next episode, but he'll continue to do that until you do. Uh, we want we want to thank our executive producer, Lior Friedman, and also thank yous out to Rome Atik, Yair Bashan, and Arad Eshel for original music. And thank you for listening and being with us. Jonathan, we shall meet next week. See you then. See you then.